Well, welcome back to Restless's Winsome Winter. Here we are. Welcome back to Restless, a post-mortem on the young, restless, and reformed, and soon to be everything in the young, reformed world. I am your host, Matt Klein. I am joined by Pastor Michael tonight. Pastor Michael, how are you doing? I am uh, very good. I am ready to have some fun discussion. I've got uh, what is left of a tangerine LaCroix sitting next to me, as well as a glass of water. So I'm ready for a full night of recording myself. And it's such a festive night of recording here, kicking off winsome winter. So I'm so glad you have such bland and normal guy <laughs> drinks uh, to to take us away. And as as everyone who's listened to us in the past knows, as we as we come to the win- winter, everyone needs a little bit of something winsome in their lives. And so we try and provide that. And so we cover a number of topics, a number of interviews in our in our trademark, dare I say, winsome way, right? I am a soon-to-be graduate of RTS, which is winsomely reformed, and I believe our show exemplifies that as, as to the best way possible. And actually, we are kicking off uh, this winsome winner with a topic that was actually recommended in our Patreon chat, which is pretty fun. And so in light of that, we are actually being joined by a member and a pastor, podcaster, all-around guy that my wife has said whenever he's on the show, he says smart things. Andrew Smith, welcome back to Restless, Andrew. Yeah, thanks. It's good to be here. I'm technically not a pastor yet. I'm Lord willing, going to be wrapping that in the next few months. But, uh, but, but, and I don't know about smart things either or winsome. I mean, you really want me here for your winsome segments you 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 we we've brought you on because you are not bound by the laws of restless's winsome winter so you are you are free to free to be you especially tonight as we discuss a question that was asked um by by the patreon chat which the question and there will be there's probably a few layers we have to get through to actually answer this question the question is why are teaching elders why do they tend to be more liberal than ruling elders now if you're a listener and that entire sentence made no sense to you please don't turn this episode (laughs) off we are going to do our best to make sure you understand that question and then we are going to let pastor michael and andrew attempt to provide at least their opinions on an answer as to why that is the case so I will I'll just lay a little bit of groundwork here and then I will let um, Michael, Andrew, please help speak into let's start with kind of what is a ruling elder and we might get to. And so you may need to explain also what is a teaching elder and we will get to um, about about why that distinction is important. Um, And I will just give a very brief historical background. Um, If you would like to read a, a pretty expansive book on this subject. I would recommend Samuel Miller's The Ruling Elder. So he's a Princeton theologian from the American Presbyterian Church, and his claim in Presbyterian church government, or polity as we call it, the ruling elder is actually the truly distinctive thing Presbyterianism has. The idea 
and office um, of ruling elder, um, or at least, or the class of the office of elder as a ruling elder. And so I'm going to read uh, two things, not from Samuel Miller, but from uh, actually one of his contemporaries and colleagues, Thomas Smith. Uh, we've read from this before. It might be the most boring sounding catechism that's ever existed, but it is very helpful. It is the ecclesiastical catechism of the Presbyterian Church. And so he answers all of these very Presbyterian questions. And so I'm going to read just a little bit. What is a ruling elder and what are their duties? And then, uh, yeah, Michael, Andrew, interact with that. Tell us the difference between that and a teaching elder and, and we'll go from there. So um, the next, he says, what is the next officer in the church after the bishop or presbyter, as we might call it, an, an elder? Uh he says, the ruling elder. Why is this officer called the ruling elder? Because he is appointed to assist, we'll just keep, I'll use the modern language, the pastor who is the teaching elder in the government of the church and from whom he is in this way distinguished. And he is called a ruling elder. And he says, where was this name derived? From the order in the Jewish synagogue, which besides the pastor, there was also an elder and there was a bench of elders associated with the bishop in authority. What is the general duty of ruling elders? To act with the pastor as help and government in the exercise of church authority, to watch over the flock, to assist in the admission or exclusion of elders, uh, of members, I'm sorry, to warn and censure the unruly, to visit and comfort the afflicted, to instruct the young, and exhort and pray as they are given the opportunity to do so. Now, obviously, neither of you have to improve upon his definition because obviously it's a classic for a reason, but maybe bring it down to our, our listeners and friends, our YRR friends who have never heard this distinction before. What are what are these teaching and ruling elders we talk about in Presbyterianism? Yeah. So uh, you know, as we as we move forward, we'll probably use just the shorthand of T-E and R-E as we uh, move or I will at least because it just flows more naturally to me. Uh, but I know that that is just inside baseball Presbyterian slang. So um, it's good that we're defining our terms right off the bat. Um, when I'm particularly talking to those uh, people who I know who are not as familiar with the Presbyterian lingo, and we're talking about teaching elders and ruling elders. Teaching elders, generally speaking, are what most people would think of as pastors. Um, they are the ones who are um, leading the worship service for the most part. Um, ruling elders can take part in that and, and do sometimes step into that role. But generally speaking, what you'll find there is a teaching elder, um, the one who is preaching most regularly and teaching most regularly. Um, also, the, the one who is administering the sacraments. So generally speaking, within a Presbyterian church, you will find a teaching elder who is the full-time paid minister. Whereas the ruling elders are, you know, in a more maybe evangelical way of, of putting it, they are maybe, you know, you'd call them lay leaders, lay elders. Um, they are they are men from the congregation who have been judged uh, to be qualified to be um, elders as, as we have the qualifications in scripture. They have been ordained um, to that role and they rule the church govern the church um, with the pastor, with the teaching elders. Um, now there's going to be, depending on the reform tradition, there are differences in how those offices kind of work together and 
and and how they work, you know, work versus, you know, based on, uh, you know, level of authority and and what, you know, ruling elders do versus teaching elders. There's a little bit of of dance and difference. Uh, but generally speaking, I think that's how you could think of it. Andrew, what would you add, if anything? Yeah, it, I, I would just add to that as well. Um, there is also differences in things like membership. Um, I don't know if the PCA yep. is this way. I think it's it this is. way. Um, the teaching elders or ministers, which I'm currently serving in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and it uses both terms interchangeably. Uh, the ministers hold their membership, their credentials at the presbytery level, whereas the ruling elders uh, remain at the local church. They remain members of part of the local church. Um, so that's another distinction that comes up, too, in distinguishing the two. Yep. Yeah, no, I think that's um, that is uh, is important as they are considered more so representatives of the of the of the local church right whereas the teaching elders are more considered representative of what we call the church at large right the presbytery right the body of of the churches together and when i say the early american presbyterian um theologians church historians why did they say the ruling elder was the like a this is the Presbyterian distinctive, right? Because they are comparing the model of church government. They have not as they're saying it's new, right? You can even hear Thomas Smith says, hey, we see this as what was being done in the Jewish synagogue, right? They're not saying we made this up because we thought it made sense. They believe it is the scriptural and historic model, but it's distinctive because they're comparing it to what they see in the hierarchical system of the... um you know, of the Roman Catholic Church, Anglican Church, right? All the church leadership is ecclesiastical, um, formal minister ordained, right? You know, there's there is no, or they're the the pure congregational model, right? Where there is no, um, I don't want to say hierarchy, but right, there is no like elevated leadership, right? All the members have have that vote. And so they're saying the the idea of the ruling elder is actually something we distinctively bring to um to discussions of church government and so that's one reason the early american presbyterians actually debated a lot of things about the ruling elder um and and vigorously defended it right they wrote it they wrote a number of books um on it and so to both of you why why is either you can just say why are ruling elders important we love ruling elders by the way or and why is this distinction these two classes i know actually technically right Am I right, Andrew? The OPC technically has a three office model, right? It's office. It's is it a, is there a, is it technically a minister, ruling elder, and um, deacon? Whereas the PCA says there are an elder in two classes. I know this is a super fine distinction, and maybe I should cut it, but I'm interested if I'm getting that right. Well, see, that's um, as I understand it, being fairly new to the OPC. Yep. It's kind of a, a gray area because, like I said, the, the church order uses the minister and teaching elder, uh, uses those titles, uses those positions interchangeably. Um, so there's times where they're referred to as ministers. There are certain requirements concerning ministers, like, for instance, 
a session meeting in the OPC has to have a minister present. And if a minister is not present, then uh, the minutes, the acts of that meeting have to later be reviewed and approved by a minister. There mm -hmm. is some of those distinctions, but uh, to my understanding, like I said, it's kind of gray between the two office and three office. Some I've heard even just call it like two and a half office because it's kind of sure. somewhere in the middle. Whereas like yeah. before I served in the United Reformed Churches, they're explicitly three office uh, ministers, sure. elders, and deacons. So Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I And again, right, this is what, even when I asked that question, it is probably getting too far in the weeds because it is a really <laughs> fine distinction, right? We are saying, um, we are using some different language and there might be some different nuance, hashtag nuance, uh, but uh, there is a distinction. And Michael, why? Wh what is the importance of this kind of understanding? Um, if, if you can... If it, um, yeah, is it more than just the like nerd out book of church order kind of thing? Yeah, of course. I, you know, it'll be interesting to see, um, how many, uh, people actually listen to this episode. <laughs> we got to title it something. We got to come up with, we, we need to speak about like some well known, uh, you know, figure in the church that we can tag their name onto it. So if we could try to, figure somebody out uh, that we could use their name for publicity purposes. Um, I was just looking up uh, for Timothy five. I mean, the reason ultimately it matters, right. Is what, what is it that the scripture reveals, right? How has God ordained that his church be run? And so we can't, you know, because of the purpose of our conversation is not uh, purely to work through this. Maybe we could go into more detail. If people are interested in that, let us know. We'd be more than willing to go into more detail about some of these things. But uh, what we have in scripture is we have very clearly laid out that um, there are uh, there is an office of elder uh, that is the position in the church that is leading the church, right? So Paul um, goes to uh, various places, he plants churches, and he establishes elders, right? In every place that he in every place that he plants a church. Those are the leaders of the church. Um, but we also have, uh, you know, in different ways in scripture, in different places, um, I'm going to read for us 1 Timothy uh, 5, 17, where you have a distinction made even among the elders, right? So it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so what you have here even is just this, you know, already you have, um, in the pastoral epistles, a, a distinction that's coming in of the different roles that are given to different elders. Um, so it's going to look different. Now, there's other reasons why just the very idea of you know ruling elders and teaching elders is important, especially within the Presbyterian system. When you think about um, the various levels of accountability, uh, various lines of authority, uh, when you think about um, just the the idea of of representation within the larger system of government and having men who are from among the congregation being representative of that congregation um, that, you know, this is, this is again in the weeds, but some of the reasons why, you know, having the distinction between ruling elder and teaching elder can be, can be helpful and practical and, and wise and biblical. Mm, yeah. 
Andrew, what do you think? What is the importance of of having ruling elders involved in in governing and leading the church? Um, well, for one thing, I mean, you know, as we look in scripture, this is what God has prescribed. He, certain men in the church are qualified to rule the church. They meet the qualifications. Yeah. They can exercise those gifts. Uh, but also recognizing... Uh, the the necessity of the distinction in that not everyone who is gifted to rule is necessarily going to vocationally be in the ministry is not going to have the depth of learning or study that that takes um is not, not going to uh you know go to seminary or things of that sort necessarily um, but it, it really it's showing how Christ builds his church as an organism, as a body, uh, where there are various parts. Uh, God raises up the parts that are needed to fulfill the tasks that the body is to carry out. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. I actually I think, yeah, it's this. I think in general, it's just something overall we should appreciate. As we just think about right? Jesus Christ giving the church gifts. And a thing we ought, you know, in evangelicalism, we don't often talk about is when, when Ephesians lists the gifts he gives to the church, he primarily lists offices and officers, apostles, pastors, prophets, right? Teachers, he's listing, right? He's listing these kinds of men. And so, yeah, as, as you say, even though, ruling elders are not um given the training right they're not given the original language training or you know or some of the training that is it is fitting and good for pastors to have we all recognize jesus has given them gifts to lead the church to teach to nurture us to help us to guide and direct us and that's just great right like that's just right it is um and and it's yeah it's just it's just again it's this it's the opposite of clericalism right an mdiv doesn't make you an elder and a lack of an mdiv doesn't prevent you from being an elder right the gifting of jesus christ you know makes you makes you that and the church recognizes it in its ordination process but guys this has been good obviously i enjoy talking about this but that's not why we're here this winsome winter we're here to talk about why teaching elders like Pastor Michael are more liberal, why they tend to be more liberal in the church body than the ruling elders do. And I think, again, before we get too far into this, we need to define this question. So now we know what a teaching <laughs> elder is and a ruling elder is. But what do we what do we mean about their more? We need to define the word liberal and what kind what we're kind of talking about so what 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 does this mean because i don't think we mean um i don't think we're talking about republicans and democrats right we're talking about a a different a different uh a different way of defining these things yeah so there is a in current presbyterian you know uh, polity issues there is regular talk about how it seems that 
um, when there is theological drift. And I think that this bears out through a lot of Presbyterian history as well. Um, I, I don't know if it's exclusive. Um, you guys could you know, correct me if if there's any period where this isn't the case. But it does seem, generally speaking, that um, throughout Presbyterian and Reformed history, that the theological drift and, you know, not just theological, but I mean, all things ultimately coming back to their biblical and theological foundations. But even then, just, you know, the, the seep into the church from the world very often seems to come through the pastors, right, through those who teach and preach. And so this is, um, it seems to be true currently, for instance, in the PCA, that across the board, generally speaking, um, those who are uh, ruling elders in local churches tend to be more uh, conservative in various ways than the teaching elders uh, that pastor them. Now, when we even begin talking about this, right? So I, like you said, we're not talking politics necessarily, although all things are connected. Uh, we're, we're not, uh, we're also, I mean, this is, you know, I haven't talked to every teaching elder in the PCA or other Presbyterian churches and seen, you know, how they line up with their sessions. Obviously we're, we're going off of generalities, but I think right. we can, basically agree as we look out at things that this tends to be the case. It's So it's a general rule. It's not always the case. Um, there are definitely cases where it is, isn't true, um, but it is generally speaking, it seems to be the case that theological drift and seepage from the world comes through the pulpit, the one who fills the pulpit most often. Yeah, I, I think... I think that would be accurate. Now, also, you know, have to hedge some because this is winsome winter. That's right. This is not to say that, you know, all all teaching elders, all pastors are liberals. There's obviously many, many men who are laboring in the ministry who are, uh, you know, good at what they do and they are sound in doctrine, sound in life. They contend for the faith. And uh, this is not by any means meant to disparage those, but, but yeah, yeah, when we see these theological drift coming into the church, it does seem to disproportional. And you can even see this like in the assemblies and how they vote and how they, you know, what they advocate and that kind of thing. It's usually the matters of latitude and of expansion and of drift, if you will, are more favored by teaching elders than ruling elders, whereas ruling elders uh, favor more the uh, more conservative, again, not politically approached, but the idea of we're going to keep things the way they are, we're not going to, to change in these ways. Right. Yeah, I think that that, that is it's good. I think, right, maybe the other thing to, um, obviously, Michael is a member of the Presbytery, um, and I think it is right important to note that even with the whatever issues are coming up in the PCA, again, we are not we are also not talking about the people that I call the arch liberals. Right. We aren't talking about right denial of the supernatural. Right. We are not talking about a lot of what has gone under the term liberal. Right. In 
you know, and again, it doesn't, it doesn't make it an ultimate defense of, of supporting any kind of drift. But again, right. We are, we're like, if, if, right. All of the things we're talking about Christianity today already supports and is like 20 steps beyond, right. We're, we're in a little niche. And I, I think the other thing you, you notice uh, now having attended some Presbytery meetings, it is at least where we are. It is not like a huge partisan thing. There aren't like, there aren't sides. There are different interests and different perspectives that are brought. Right. And so it's not a, like, it just is often not clear, but I do think the generality stands now. And there's a very simple way anyone can check this and you can find uh, accounts uh, online, Twitter accounts that do check this. The glorious thing about, again, Presbyterian government is it's all done publicly, right? There are no backroom Mark Driscoll deals made. Everyone's vote on different issues and what they say is a matter of public record. And so this is this is kind of how this generality has come to be known, that there are it seems to be a higher percentage of teaching elders voting for latitude on things like um, relationship to same sex attraction or, um, you know, taking certain exceptions to the confessions, then then do so ruling elders. Right. That's just it's a matter of public record that at least the percentage adds up that way. And so the question when everyone realizes it and one of our patrons asked was why and pastor michael immediately said i've got a lot of notes and i'm writing them down and then andrew started responding and so if you want to join in these conversations please join the patreon that's great you can find it in the chat but pastor michael you started writing notes how winsome well, were these notes and how many of them are you going to share with us i don't think i said i'm currently writing notes i think i said i've got a lot of thoughts and i will try to write them down and share them um, I did write some notes down. I did, I did send myself some notes. Um, but I'm just this is a, a really interesting conversation to me uh, because I think it actually gets to the heart of various problems within the ministry that we've talked about a lot, actually. I think these things have come up a lot um, in some of our interviews and some of our discussions about some of the uh, issues that lead to a disconnect between those who often become teaching elders and the real world <laughs> is well, how yeah. I'm going to put it. it I know I, it's winsome winner. No, uh, no. This they, is the I, wonderful thing, by the way, about uh, our show is that very often when we say we're not going to be winsome, we like are constantly trying to like you know back people up and hey well maybe what mark driscoll said wasn't that bad and yeah. then and then was... when we come into winsome winter it does seem like most of our time is spent going pretty hard yep. <laughs> and well so... and, and, and i want to make one comment as you as you say this disconnect from the real world i actually think you're starting to reflect on the actual tragedy of this the the tragedy is the be is the existence of a divide between these two classes of elders, yes. right? Like that's the actual, like, there's a problem that these things that these, these divert out this way. And, and you're, and you're relating it starting with this relation to the real world, I guess. Tell us more. 
Yeah. So um, I'm going to uh, save, you know, one of the the things that came up in the chat, especially from Andrew, I'm going to save and let him uh, cover some of this because he brought up some great points and I'll chime in with that. Uh, but some of this goes back to just the nature of seminary education and and seminary in general. And I'll, I'll mention that a bit, I guess. But um, the, the starting place or where I would start is uh, very often it has to do with the the more theoretical nature of um, how many teaching elders think about the world, um, which comes from having a more theoretical education, right? So having a, a kind of education that doesn't always seem in, in many ways to touch the ground to um, give maybe like uh, more hands-on practical um, ways that one might actually live in the physical world as God has made it. Um, and that's fine, right? Like th theoretical things or things that are more um, philosophical of nature, um, the the life of the mind, that's actually a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. It's, it's uh, a grace of God. I think that all of us should uh, be seeking to grow in the life of the mind, but especially the way that many are taught today. You imagine somebody who you know, I mean, they just go straight into like a maybe a Bible college or or just any kind of of university. Then they move right into seminary and they get out from there right into the pulpit. Um, there is, I think, little time to actually engage in things like hard work, um, like hard physical work. I should say, you know, not that, you know, there's not genuinely difficult work that's done with the mind. There is. Uh, but when it's disconnected from hard physical work, um, I think that you lose, in a sense, uh, you know, a, a part of of what it is to be human. <laughs> this is it's going to sound so bad uh, because I'm making it sound like uh, teaching elders are subhuman but i am a teaching elder remember i i've right. i've done all of this that's <laughs> so, why all of that is winsome because he's he's a teaching elder i i am the man uh but but uh anyway i i just think that you know rather than you know if you're if you're interacting with people on the level of hey i'm a plumber and i come and i you know do this work and and there like there's a way that things are to be and that they work and that you can't you can't change them, right? Like there's there's a certain way that these pipes fit together and there's no way to change that and make it work. Um, when you live in in that kind of a world, uh, there's, there's a more concrete nature to the way that you see things. Whereas if you live in a world where, hey, as long as I argue the right way, I can get an A on my paper, right? Like as long as it doesn't matter what position I take, as long as I you know, argue it well, or if I have the right sources, if I do the right footnoting, man, I like, I can make anything true. And obviously people don't think that consciously, but I do think that just the nature of academics does tend in that direction where you think, well, as long as I just do a good job in whatever, you know, way I'm doing it, whether this be, you know, writing a paper, uh, preaching a sermon, like I can, make things what I want them to be. Uh, 
Mm. I think that uh, that can at least be a tendency um, within the more theoretical nature of what uh, teaching elders are trained in. And again, I don't think that the theoretical element, the philosophical element of it all um, is necessarily wrong in and of itself. But I think when there is a disconnection from the more concrete aspects of the world of nature, I think that that's one of the ways that this starts to um, allow for more drift, Mm. shall we say. And so when you have a ruling elder then who is a plumber, right, or is a, you know, a doctor or is whatever, and they're dealing with more tangible physical realities on a day-to-day basis, I think that in some ways that does ground somebody. Doesn't make them right all the time. In fact, there are ways that like, you know, whatever you do probably shift how you see the world in a way that might not be helpful, right? This is one of the the blessings of a plurality of elders where you have different men with different perspectives and are able to help as iron sharpens iron and help each other govern well, right? It's it's not the role for just one guy to do. Um, But that leads to another thing that I didn't even write down, but I just thought of um, just the nature of public ministry as there is a teaching elder who's always up front, they're preaching, they're teaching, they're the well-known one. They're they are they are doing those things that most visibly we connect with the ministry, right? They're administering the sacraments, they're you know uh, visiting people. They're like they're seemingly more active and more the role. I think at least in our day that that does tend in people's minds toward making them think that's the guy, right? Like he's the guy that runs the church. He's the one that does it. Even in Presbyterian churches, that guy, it seems to be the guy. And uh, obviously we don't say that in our, you know, standards, in our uh, constitutions. Uh, but I think practically speaking, that can happen. And when that happens, uh, I you know, I don't think that teaching elders are going to be um, aloof to that all the time. I don't think that uh, that won't come across at times. And depending on what your natural uh, temptations are like and what, uh, you know, particular temptations come to you, that may be something that makes you think, hey, I am the guy. Oh, I am the person that does all of this, right? Oh, those elders, they aren't as involved as me in some of these other things. And so, uh, all of a sudden, I've elevated myself. I'm no longer just an elder among elders. I am the guy. And so now I can start to decide, well, I really, you know, I know all these other guys say that I'm wrong about this, but I'm the guy, right? I'm the one who does it. I'm the one who who day in, day out preaches. They don't get it, right? So, so there can be a kind of lack of humility then that creeps in, um, a kind of pride in how one sees the other elders. Yeah, I think uh, I would just add to that. You, you hit on something really important, talking about how the guys who, you know, straight go straight from high school or homeschool to Bible college to seminary to their first pastoral call, um, they miss out on that lived experience, you know, not just of like labor, or, or anything of that, but just really what it takes and what life is like living in a secular world among secular people. Um, because when one 
spends their whole life basically in school in this realm of idea it can be very easy to just be so purely idea that you don't realize that ideas have consequences and ideas have implications and applications in the real world so like say you come out of seminary sympathetic to well things like well we could say like side b or uh, even things like, you know, you, you'll once in a while, you'll see a minister that talks about, well, you should use people's preferred pronouns uh, because, you know, that's loving to them or whatever, which, which are things I think we would all disagree with rather strongly, but not realizing that you've probably got people in your congregation that work in secular workplaces that are dealing with pressures like, well, I'm at risk of losing my job because I won't use those pronouns and because I don't have, because I have a conviction against doing things like that. And I don't know where, how I'm going to be able to pay my bills or feed my family or even just dealing with things like, can, can you balance a budget? Uh, can you, um, you know, conduct the transactions you need of life? Can you open a bank account? Can you file your tax returns? Things like that when you when you haven't really had that kind of lived experience you not only like are lacking that experience but you really lose a lot of ways i think to relate to your congregants and understand what they're going through and it kind of opens up the door to this to furthering this disconnect but i i think another important thing too that, that's worth talking about is what is the thing that probably most singularly distinguishes teaching elders from ruling elders, what's something that almost all teaching elders have done that hardly any ruling elders have done, and that is going to seminary, because you go to seminary, you get a master's degree, that is a credential that the world assigns a particular value to, um, so that in a certain way opens itself up to a kind of elitism, well, I mean, I've done all this school, and I've done all this learning and I have letters I can put behind my name now. And so uh, that, you know, even the best of us, we can be prone to pride. We can be prone to think, well, because I've done this, I'm special. I'm somebody I've arrived. And there's that. But then there's also like these competing, you know, guys go to seminary and there is seminaries are kind of in a certain way they're a war zone they're a battle of competing interests because on one side you have academic interests you have you know you have guys who go to seminary because they want to get a phd and they want to teach at a college or or a university or a seminary um they end up in the ministry as a fallback option that doesn't work out because it's really hard to get one of those jobs. So it's like, well, I guess I'll go get ordained and be a pastor because I need to make a living. And it's not really where I'm at, where I'm called. It's not really where my heart's at. So you see things like that. But then also just like when you look at the academy and where it's at and what it wants, we live in the world of publish or perish, where if you want to make it in the academy, you've got to be coming up with new stuff and things that, you know, not things that Bavink and Calvin and the like have already been saying. Mm. And so there's, there's this, in, this kind of perverse incentive in the academy to be coming up with new things. And this bleeds into professors, even at our conservative confessional seminaries, where they speculate, they innovate, 
and then they have their pet projects they push these off onto the students the students absorb them uh this you know academic freedom can be a good thing but it can also be used to give cover to bringing in uh, errant teachings anti-confessional teachings heterodox teachings into seminaries um, in the interest of academia that are really harmful when brought into the church and brought into ministry yep yeah, I think that's huge. Again, just historically, look at how often, you know, various errant teachings began in the seminaries with seminary professors. Um, and then it just it influences the students. They get out into the pulpits and and it spreads that way. So that does seem to be um, very, yeah. very normative. And like you're saying, it does for other reasons, you know, uh, create the kind of people that that uh, are maybe going to be more likely to search out that which is is new or uh, you know more uh, more exciting or something like that. It is very interesting to think about, right? Higher education, especially in the West, in many ways, was created to train ministers and pastors, right? That's. But I think you both are totally right that the the as andrew as you said there's these competitive desires the the urge for academics is important right um right luther said you can't understand the bible without a liberal arts education right he's saying you need to understand original languages you need to learn how to read you need to learn learned logic but he then says you can't really understand the bible with that because it's a spiritual right it's a spiritual matter right this is a matter of the work of the spirit right and so we don't we don't want to divide from either. But I think that, you know, so then, of course, there's a this is a question for another time of how we train pastors. And I think that um, I do know how we can end this winsomely. But I want to before I ask my final question to end us on a winsome note, um, I want to encourage our ruling elders, tell them we love them. We're thankful for them. We are thankful for you um your shepherding of the congregation and we we with the apostles pray you will continue to do so like as you have shepherd the flock of god that god has given to you and again we shouldn't be surprised whether it's teaching elders seminaries or whatever right the church is always most in danger from things that are inside of the church right this is just historically where we see false teaching we see these things this is always what the church is concerned about and and so it's no so it shouldn't be overly discouraging that these kinds of struggles exist today and so you guys can add on that if you want but i do want to um at, end here on something winsome we want to let the healing begin what let the healing begin this winsome winter how do we uh begin to 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 mend this rift if there is one right uh, and again i don't think that no no one here is right grinding an axe with a specific person right but we're noticing this divergence how do we how do we bring together what god never meant to be separate meant to be together um even if they are different in class different in some function they are equal they are both shepherds in god's flock It's a good well, question. Um, I, you know, I'll maybe want to think about it a little bit more, uh, but even just, you know, one of the, the things that I think is really helpful 
just to think about the the benefit that you have um, between the two, right? Again, the blessing of a plurality of elders um, and the blessing of uh, an office with this distinction. Um, why why is it that God has given us this distinction? Why is it that God has has directed us this way by His Word? Well, it's for His blessing, right? It's not. It is not to um, destroy his bride. It is to sanctify her. It is to to build his kingdom. So um, if we just take some time and think about some of the, the blessings of having this, um, it's great to have a well-trained pastor, right? It's great to have a pastor who has a, a you know, solid seminary experience and uh, degree and has actually you know, hopefully not just the degree, hopefully you actually learned that which you were supposed to in order to receive the degree. Like that's that's incredibly important even in in helping uh, someone in expressing and explaining, you know, the original meaning of God's word. So that's awesome. And we should be happy to have that. And now let's think about ways that it would, you know, then benefit everybody in this situation to have somebody who maybe didn't get that man, somebody with a different perspective who didn't get that, you know, when, when you learn certain things, for instance, about scripture, uh, maybe you're taught about, you know, certain, uh, a certain Greek construction or something like that, um, in a seminary class that may be really good. And it may help you understand the scripture, but there's also going to be times that because you've been taught in a certain way or about one particular way of reading the text, um, you may not even be asking all the right questions of a text that you come to. But somebody who doesn't have that same you know, uh, perspective, who doesn't have the same categories that have been formed in their mind in which to kind of insert the scripture, they're going to come to it in a different way. And they might ask a question or, or direct you in a way that's going to help you. Um, this is, you know, I'm speaking from the perspective of a teaching elder because that's what I am. Uh, but like that's going to help you in your task, right? It's going to help you in in what you are doing. Also, on the level of shepherding, to have to have um, this mix of those who are generally speaking um, long term men of the congregation, right? Like they're people that are there. Generally speaking, teaching elders aren't in the church as long as the ruling elders. Um, that, by the way, I think is another reason why this sometimes happens, because the the consequences, social consequences look different um, often for teaching elders versus ruling elders, uh, because there's just a, you know, generally it's again, this isn't always the case, but generally there's a longer term time commitment by ruling elders to a church than teaching elders who more often move around to a couple of churches within the the their life and ministry. Um, and think also the benefits, you know, generally speaking, teaching elders tend to be younger. Um, you know, part of this is just because of the nature of, you know, getting men from seminary and and the nature of, you know, they're kind of bouncing around. Also just the nature of the office, right? Uh, to be a teaching elder, you're going to be much more active in a way that it might be harder to do. Whereas, you know, um, it might be harder to do well into your senior years, but there's, you know, other ways as a ruling elder that you may not be as constrained. Um, you know, it's because you're not 
you know, preparing a sermon every week. You're not, uh, you know, uh, maybe engaged in all the other aspects of, of the teaching ministry. Um, you're helping, you're a part of it, you're able to teach, but you may not be uh, having to do it quite so often. Um, so for that reason and others, it does tend to be that teaching elders are younger, ruling elders are older. What a blessing to have that balance of, you know, both youth and energy and uh, have that wisdom then to direct you while you're young. Um, again, that's not always the case, but it it does it does often tend to be. So uh, again, just the the general principle of having different men with different giftings all qualified, but with um, you know various ways that they see, various ways that they shepherd, various various ways. You know, um, you think of having you know an elder who is extremely compassionate is great. And if you can have then also an elder who is just very level-headed about everything and doesn't have maybe as big of a heart all the time, and those two working together are going to be able to um, provide a care and, and shepherding of the congregation that will actually be better. So that's a lot, uh, but I think um, for some of those reasons anyway, uh, it's really beneficial that we have both of these parts of this office. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, I found it where I'm at out here in South Dakota. Uh, we have three ruling elders in our church. They're uh, older, uh, godly men. They have deep roots in this community. I just got here a few months ago. I don't know I don't really know which end is up out here, but they do. Um, they're invested in this community, in this land, in these people. They know it. They care about it. And they have so much lived wisdom and experience that I don't have. You know, they've been serving in this church longer than I've been alive. Um, so in a certain sense, I mean, that's humbling and that, you know, causes me to check myself and realize, you know, if these guys are saying things, if they're for certain things that they probably have a good reason and I need to listen. Um, but to your question of like, how do we heal? How do we fix the, this problem? I mean, yeah, we could have the discussion about like, you know, how are ministers trained? I think something people certainly could do and should do is pay attention to who they're sending into ministry, who they're sending to seminary, and what seminary they're sending them to. What are those schools putting out? What are their professors publishing? What are they about? Are they promoting the kind of things that are going to create this elitism and credentialism? Or are these men, these professors and these schools, are they putting out things that uh, are for the church, are helpful to the church, are going to preserve the peace and purity of the church and ground their students in the faith once for all deliver. You know, we all like, I think we don't really do the due diligence always that we should. We trust a school based on its past reputation, uh, its name or whatever. And I mean, a lot is changing in higher education everywhere, but it's affecting seminaries too. pressures from the culture and like, and we all need to do our homework and, and make sure that um, 
our guys are learning what they need to be in the places where they should be. Yeah, to just jump into, I know I went off on a bit of a rant um, just before Andrew very eloquently summed up his point. But I think what I was trying to say is uh, there's a, a deep need for humility. If you are to, you know, if there is that tension where it exists, I think one of the the biggest reasons for it tends to be a lack of humility, a lack of of interest in actually thinking, okay, God has put this man in the elder board, whether it's a teaching elder or a ruling elder. And so they are, he or they, or, you know, whoever you are thinking of, um, are like, they are, are, uh, uh, in a position to speak authoritatively and I should listen, right? I should be willing to listen and maybe not always agree, but, um, if we begin in the place of humility, I think that, that will do a lot in terms of helping us to actually understand one another. Even if there are these varying perspectives, varying backgrounds, different lives lived, uh, we can still then be able to understand one another. Well, thanks for joining us today, this winsome winter. I hope you had a more festive drink than Pastor Michael. So we are so glad to have you. We were glad to have Andrew join us today. Um, Check us out online. Check us, find us on your favorite social media and talk to us. Tell us what you think about this. Um, And by the way, we love you teaching elders and we love you ruling elders. Let the healing begin. It's the holiday season, and I know that you are looking for the perfect gift for the perfect person in your life. Thankfully, you're listening to the right podcast. Newly added to the Restless store is the Restless Christmas Collection. Go on over to therestlesspodcast.com, and you can find ornaments for your tree, ugly Christmas sweaters, and even the paper that you need to wrap them. There's so much that I simply wouldn't have time to tell you about it all. To make it even better, you can use the code MARYRESTLESS to get 10% off of one item in your cart. What are you waiting for? Go to therestlesspodcast.com and you have yourself a very merry restless and more importantly, a very merry Christmas.